Welcome to TAF Radio's Buzz Politics, a podcast covering exciting topics in local, national, and international politics in a fair and balanced way. I'm your host today, Rena Shao. today's episode, we will be discussing the current picture of the Russia-Ukraine war along with its future prospects, including how it would affect other countries' diplomatic relations. Stan Shunpike, our guest for this episode, is an independent foreign relations analyst who projected the invasion three days before it occurred. Welcome to our show, Mr. Shunpike. Thanks for having me back, Rena. Given the intensity of the war, the situation on the ground has been rapidly changing, and the territories controlled by the two sides have often changed substantially. Before February 24th, Ukraine controlled the territory that it claimed with falling exceptions. Crimea was totally controlled by Russia, while parts of the Donbass were controlled by a separatist organization called the Donetsk People's Republic, known as short for the DPR and the Lugansk People's Republic, LPR for short both closely allied with Russia. So, Mr. Shunpike, could you give us a brief overview of the developments in the war after the invasion? What is the current picture as of today, April 25th, 2022? Sure. Uh, the war's gone through uh, roughly three phases, and I think, according to my, to my uh, picture of phases, we're in the third phase. The war began on February 24th, and there was about a week where uh, the Russians were pushing forward and making progress uh, across Ukraine, but especially in the south. So they moved really quickly in, in the south. They took uh, Kherson. Uh, they pushed out from Crimea and took part of the Dnieper River. Uh, and they took some other cities like Melitopol, uh, pushing north towards uh, Zaporizhia and laying siege to Mariupol. So uh, helpful to have a map to keep track of all the cities, but they took you know maybe the southern fourth of the country or so on the east side of the river. And in the north, uh, they made they moved rapidly with uh, a you know combined paratrooper attack on the airport that had some maybe mixed success, but they moved troops in on both the west and the east side of Kiev. And uh, you know the very early reports seemed to be that Russia was moving quickly and making a lot of progress, but then they seemed to kind of stall, and uh, they remained roughly stalled throughout the month of March. Although a few things happened, so. Kharkov is one of the big Ukrainian cities in the uh, northeast of Ukraine, a big Russian target. And the Russians were not able to make a lot of progress in taking Kharkov, but they moved around to the south and east of Kharkov and took Izium on March 17th. So this is sort of an example of the slow progress they were making in the eastern half of the country um, in what I call the second phase. So uh, the second phase ends at the beginning of April, say April first to sixth or so, the Russians pack their bags and move all their forces out of the north half of the country. They pull away from Kiev, they leave the various cities, uh, Sumy and Chernihov in the north, that they had been either occupying or laying siege to, and just kind of melted away. Now they are gearing up for the third phase, which is a renewed offensive just in the eastern regions in uh, Donetsk and Luhansk. So that second phase started around April 19th, and so it's been going for about a week now. And it is too early to tell whether or not uh, they will make progress, but uh, they are clearly sort of ramping up their attacks in the eastern half of the country. Mm-hmm. 
And since February, there have been some big stories about the war that captured a lot of attention. However, some of these have turned out not to be accurate, even though many people still think that they are true. So number one, Snake Island. Snake Island is a Ukrainian island in the Black Sea. On February 24th, 13 Ukrainian soldiers on Snake Island were told by a Russian warship to surrender. They said, F you Russian warship, and the warship fired on them and they all got them killed. Later that week, Zelensky gave them the title of Hero of Ukraine false mostly. Is that true or false? False. Well, the, the island was certainly taken by the Russians, and there may or may not have been some sort of audio recording, but the soldiers who were supposedly killed later turned up as prisoners of war. So uh, they did not die, and, and they did in fact surrender. Number two, the ghost of Kiev. The ghost of Kiev shot down six Russian planes over Kiev during the opening days of the war. Some people even claim that she shot down more planes later on. Is that true or false? False. Uh, there is no indication that the ghost of Kiev uh, exists. And although the Russians certainly have struggled gaining air supremacy, it seems like most of the Russian planes that have been shot down have been shot down by surface-to-air missiles and not by a heroic pilot, although people do like having heroic pilots to cheer for. Number three, the sinking of Moskva. On April 13th, the Ukrainians succeeded in hitting the Russian warship Moskva in the Black Sea with a missile. The ship was the flagship of the Russian Black Sea fleet, and its sinking represents a significant setback for the Russians. Is that true or false? That one is true. We have good reason to suspect it's true. The warship was certainly sunk. Uh, I believe the Russians claimed that it sort of accidentally exploded, that they had some ammunition that blew up and it just sort of sunk on its own. But this doesn't seem very credible. Uh, the Ukrainians claimed they hit it with a missile, and this seems to be what, it, what happened. And certainly it was an important ship in the, their fleet, not their largest ship overall, but one of their largest uh, ships. And it is a major setback for, for the Russian Navy. Number four, Russia has five times the amount of military troops than Ukraine, which means that the Ukrainians are fighting under conditions of overwhelming numerical inferiority in almost every battle. Is that true or false? That is false. Russia's population is not even five times as large as Ukraine. I think the Russian, Russian population is maybe three or three and a half times as large as Ukraine. But if you look at the number of forces on the ground, uh, Russia and Ukraine have sort of roughly similar uh, sizes of armies uh, on the ground um, in fighting in Ukraine. Although I'm sure in particular engagements, one side or the other is outmatched. And if you look at equipment and stuff, then the question becomes more complicated. But certainly Russia does not outnumber Ukraine five to one all across Ukraine. Number five, Russia's economy has collapsed. After economic sanctions on Russia by countries supporting Ukraine, the ruble's value in foreign exchange markets plummeted. Russians have been running out of basic goods like toilet paper, and the Russians will soon rise up and put an end to Vladimir Putin's rule. Is that true or false? False, or at least there is good reason to believe that it is false. It is true that the ruble immediately plummeted after the war, but uh, it is now back to roughly where it was right before the war started. Um, and 
although it is hard to tell what Russian popular opinion is because of uh, the different media environment they have and the you know relative lack of openness in their society. Uh, all indications are that the Russians broadly support Putin and support the war. That being said, what is the likelihood of a major military confrontation in the next month? If you look at what's going on right now, it, there is a lot of fog of war. I mean, as, as your examples show, um, as those questions show, a lot of what people initially thought ended up not being true. And so I think it's sort of easy sometimes to look back and say, oh, yeah, you know, obviously there wasn't a heroic pilot shooting down all these planes and dogfights. But at the time, it can be very hard to sort out. And so we may be in the middle of a major military confrontation right now, but it's sort of hard to measure. What we do know is that uh, Russia has not been rapidly seizing territory and also that uh, Ukrainian counterattacks have not been rapidly retaking territory. Uh, there are claims that uh, Russia is ramping up attacks. If you look at uh, Russian sources, Russian telegram channels, they claim that there's a bigger attack right around the corner. Um, and if you look at sort of more Western aligned sources, they wonder whether or not Russia is capable of launching a more organized or more substantial attack. Uh, so I think in the next month, we will learn a lot about what Russia's capabilities are based on whether or not they're able to take more territory or uh, escalate, escalate uh, the conflict further and sort of push a lot across a larger front. But um, it will take time to sort of to, to, to really see how much Russia can do to uh, sort of expand the war in the Donbass. So with that, what would a clear win for Russia look like? And what would a clear win for Ukraine look like? Is there a chance of a long-term stalemate at the end? The last question, uh, I think there absolutely is a, a possibility of stalemate. Um, to the other two questions, let me sort of go through. So, so the easiest way to, to say is that the simplest Russia win is where they completely control Ukraine. And the simplest uh, Ukrainian win is where they completely control all of Ukraine. Now, in practice, Russia probably is not aiming to uh, conquer the entirety of Ukraine just because occupying the whole of Ukraine would probably take, I don't know, at least three to 500,000 troops. And they don't seem to want to commit that many troops or have that many troops available right now to commit uh, to occupying Ukraine. It seems like Russia's initial military goal was to seize the capital, which is why they directed those columns of forces there uh, that stalled out in March. And they hope to seize the capital to overthrow the government because I think they have, broadly Russia has two aims. They want to control or take over some of the territory of Ukraine. And they want to compel the government of Ukraine to promise not to join NATO and in general promise to respect uh, Russian wishes in the future. And so if they could have seized the capital and overthrown the government, then they could have had a lot of uh, ability to get both of those wishes sort of by compelling the government to do what they wanted. Um, right now, uh, since they've withdrawn from the capital, it seems at least in the short term, they will not be trying to conquer the capital. And so uh, if they were to settle for a less total victory, but still a clear victory, they would probably want to at least seize the entirety of Donetsk and Luhansk, which means getting uh, the, the cities of uh, Slavyansk and Kramatorsk and other cities sort of in the eastern part of Ukraine, where currently around 60,000 or so Ukrainian soldiers are dug in in a very elaborate defensive trench warfare situation uh, opposing them. And um, 
they would also probably want to take Odessa, the last uh, coastal city that Ukraine holds. So this would uh, completely isolate Ukraine from uh, the Black Sea, and they would control the eastern part of the country, which was all of the territory that uh, the separatists initially wanted to control. And from there, they would have the upper hand and sort of be able to say, uh, the war can go on as long as it wants. Uh, we have the territory we came to take. And, you know, if you want to negotiate, then you can negotiate with us. And those sort of, we can set the terms. So I think that would be kind of a satisfactory outcome for Russia. Uh, and for Ukraine, ideally, they would want to get rid of all Russian forces anywhere in Ukraine and regain control of the separatist regions where the fighting has been going on for the last eight years and retake Crimea. I think it is uh, very unlikely that they would take Crimea back. And I think um, even recapturing the separatist regions sounds unlikely because so far Ukraine hasn't demonstrated a real capability for launching counteroffensives that have been able to take territory from Russia. But I think that's what they want to do because I think uh, it is very difficult for Ukraine to surrender territory to acknowledge that uh, any part of its territory will be part of Russia or part of some separatist country. And so uh, I think it will not be easy for them to end the war without uh, regaining the territories in the East. Mm -hmm. And what are some possible ramifications of the war in Ukraine on major conflicts between other countries? We've seen even in the past few weeks that little flare-ups around the world. Uh, in Ar Armenia and Azerbaijan, there were hints of uh, escalating conflict. There's been um, hints of Iran being more provocative and then uh, additional fighting in Israel and Palestine. So I think one possible outcome that you can see is that uh, while a lot of the focus of Russia and the United States and Europe are on what's going on in Ukraine, other countries will take the opportunity to sort of flex their muscles and see if they can uh, do some meddling or settle some old scores while uh, the other great powers are distracted. But for major conflicts, I think one of the big long-term consequences will be in how China views uh, its relationship with the West, because uh, as China grows in power, China's uh, likely to head towards conflict with the West, uh, in particular on the issue of Taiwan, which uh, China would like to uh, reclaim and regain sovereignty over. And the, the effort by China to do this would probably be opposed even more fiercely by the US and uh, Europe than they are currently working to oppose Russia's uh, actions in Ukraine. And so I think China is keeping a very close eye on what is happening and trying to learn you know, what is working for Russia and what isn't to, to, to know what level of force they would have to have developed and what uh, sort of re re retaliatory pressure they would have to be prepared to deal with if they ever want to move on Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And for this Russia-Ukraine war uh, that's happening right now, how do countries divide up in supporting Ukraine and Russia? The, the biggest support for Ukraine comes from the United States and Europe. Um, I think it's possible that Putin was helping, to, hoping to uh, divide Europe. And you can definitely see little uh, amounts of friction here between different countries, um, with possibly the UK being the most ardently pro-Ukraine and 
France being a little bit more open to negotiations. But broadly, all of Europe and the United States has been lined up firmly behind Ukraine, uh, helping to transfer them all sorts of military as well as other humanitarian assistance. Um, even uh, countries like uh, Finland that have been traditionally neutral have been more open towards uh, joining NATO and aligning themselves with the West in response to the war because uh, they also do, they would rather be firmly on NATO's side in the event of conflict with Russia than hope for neutrality and not get it. Um, the rest of the world is broadly trying to avoid taking a firm stance. Uh, there's been a plenty of condemnation of Russia's actions from around the world, but um, in Central, America, Central and South America, in Africa, in Southeast Asia, and across Asia, most countries have refused to take an official stance on it. So uh, India uh, abstained from a vote on in the UN on condemning Russia and China also abstained. Um, so for countries outside of the immediate, uh, you know, US, European, Western sphere of influence, they uh, don't necessarily want to get directly involved and they have a more complicated positions. Mm -hmm. And with that, how is the war likely to affect America's economic and foreign policy strength? This is the question that I think a lot of people are asking. And it's an important one. Uh, I think my kind of instinct here is that it's going to be good for the United States, at least in the short term. Of course, if it escalated into nuclear war, that would be very bad for the United States and very bad for everyone. Um, so we all uh, hope that doesn't happen. I think uh, there is some reason to be optimism, but in general, when you have a, any sort of conflict escalating between nuclear armed powers, you have to worry about that a little bit. Uh, but because uh, the war is threatening Europe's access to Russian national resources, such as uh, natural gas and other things, and the United States has a big oil and gas industry, this potentially makes Europe more reliant on the United States for economic issues. And certainly it's a reminder of the ways in which Europe can be economically or militarily reliant as well on America. And so in terms of tying Europe closer to the United States, this is the, the United States advantage. And if the war goes badly for Russia, then that is also to America's strength. It, uh, the more the Russian military is weakened and embarrassed fighting Ukraine, the more Russia will have less ability to wield its, wield its power broadly on the global stage and to be able to be an antagonist to uh, U.S. aims. Now, the U.S. has to be careful here because if the U.S. does too good of a job of embarrassing or frustrating Russia, then maybe Russia will be driven to escalate in other ways with increased heavy bombing or, uh, you know, escalating towards a greater military confrontation with NATO itself. So um, one hopes that U.S. planners are doing their best to behave rationally here, though, of course, you also expect U.S. planners to pursue their own interests. I think even if Russia were to defeat Ukraine, uh, if they were if they were to completely subdue the entire country, that would probably be a blow to uh, U.S. confidence, and uh, it would be seen as a Russian victory. But even then, that would sort of be reasserting a status quo in the eyes of Russia, and would still leave you know the Russia is much weaker than the Soviet Union was during the Cold War. 
But I think what is far more likely to uh, ultimately happen here is that you know Russia gains control of some part of Ukraine. I think there are probably two options. One option is that Russia is not able to take any more territory and the war kind of devolves into a stalemate right now. And the second option is Russia is able to take more of the territory in the east and then uh, from there seeks to negotiate a peace. And in either of those outcomes, uh, there's potential for the Russian military to be involved in future conflicts in Ukraine or to be involved with difficult and costly uh, occupation or peacekeeping missions in the country, which would uh, be another example, another opportunity for uh, the US and its allies to uh, impose costs on Russia. And there are plenty of opportunities in the US in this. Uh, and I think the US establishment is aware of those opportunities and is doing their best to, to pursue them. Mm -hmm. Thank you again, Mr. Shunpike. It's been a pleasure meeting you. Thank you. Happy to be on. Stan Shunpike, our guest for this episode, is an independent foreign relations analyst who predicted the invasion three days before it occurred. This episode was produced by Rena Shao. We get technical help from Nicole Zhang. Thanks for listening to the Buzz Politics Podcast at Taft Radio.